So if you could turn with me there, Hosea and chapter 4. While you are finding that uh, small book in the Old Testament, uh, let me just quickly recount the ground that we have covered. We are going through a series of messages that we are calling Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And uh, we have tried to answer the question initially, who were the Minor Prophets? And we showed that there were roughly 12 of them, and uh, they begin with Hosea here all the way to Malachi, and that they served the Lord um, just before Israel went into captivity, continued all the way until Judah also went into captivity, continued all the way until the people of Israel were restored back to the promised land, and again they were being spoken to about their entire attitude towards the Lord even then. So you have that entire period these prophets served. And you can almost divide them into three groups. The first four together, the next four together, and the last four together. Saving that way across the entire uh, period. We saw that there were individuals that were receiving messages from God. And they were consequently going with a lot of uh, courage to face God's people about their sin, to face God's people about judgment that was going to come because of their stubbornness in sin. And so we've seen that they thus were obedient to God and many of them suffered greatly for this. Finally, we began with uh, uh, the prophecy that is called Hosea, named after the prophet himself. Hosea um, is one of the longer ones, and uh, it's also uh, the most shocking of all the minor prophets. And it is shocking primarily because God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. And knowing very well that this is her background, he still goes ahead in obedience to marry her. And it is meant to really illustrate something of uh, the covenant relationship that God has with his people, the people of Israel, and then also showing how they are unfaithful to that covenant relationship. Uh, we, we have seen in chapter 1 and chapter 3 especially, and then chapter 2 in between the two. In chapter 1 is the mar marriage and the children that are born out of that marriage. Uh, chapter 2 is something of uh, an application of that to the people of Israel themselves. And then chapter 3 is the height of this imagery. And it is when 
the wife to Hosea continues her uh, prostitution after marriage and then Hosea is told to go back to her, to, to speak to her, to try and plead with her to basically return home. And we, we saw how it, it's, it, humanly speaking, it's next to impossible. And the, the tendency, if word gets out to relatives, as we said, is for them to say he must have been fed with some, something. How can he even think about getting his wife back? But the point there is pretty simple. It is illustrating how God himself does so. God goes to Israel with the prophets, rather through the prophets, to speak to them, even as they are now out there in uh, captivity. He's speaking to them about them repenting and coming back home. It shows God's love for his people. Now we enter into chapter 4, and as we begin chapter 4, you notice that to a large extent, the, the imagery is behind us. The, the shocking picture has been put aside, and what you begin reading is not very different from what you read in Isaiah, what you read in Jeremiah, what you read in Ezekiel, what you read even in the other minor prophets. Straightforward poetry and straightforward preaching. That's what we find there. And uh, in this particular case, God now begins by showing his accusation or his controversy. And I want us to just see that from uh, verse 1 uh, down to verse 3. Uh, we'll make our way right through this chapter. And perhaps before I do that, I do need to say that uh, although the, the, our chapter ends with verse 19 and chapter 5 begins after that, really the theme that we are opening up now goes all the way to chapter 6 and verse 3. Chapter 6 and verse 3. And it is where God is speaking directly about the sin of his people. He's also speaking about how he intends to punish them because of their sin. And then at the same time, the way in which he wants ultimately in punishing them to bring them to repentance and consequently bring them to himself. You see that right through chapter 4, chapter 5, and then chapter 6, just a few verses. And then after that, it, go, it picks up on uh, their ongoing stubbornness, despite this message that is being given to them. They, they continue being stubborn, and of course, finally, punishment hits. I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to take you through two chapters plus, or just one chapter. And I thought, no, let's just do one chapter. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, sometimes you can be filling a cup. It's already full. You are still filling it. So everything is just coming out in the end. And you are not achieving anything. So we'll only look at chapter 4. But bear in mind that the theme that is being picked up here, this controversy 
that the Lord has with his people will take us through across chapter 5. The first three verses then. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Basically, the point that we have there is this controversy. It's uh, the equivalent of uh, a person who is tired of talking with you directly, tired. And finally, they sue you to court. Now, I know as Zambians, when somebody sues you to court, you consider that person to be very bad. That's the way we do it. But in actual fact, what the person is doing is saying, look, let me take you to an arbitrator. Let somebody else listen to what I have to say. And then you will be put on your defense. You also explain why you are behaving as you are behaving. Then that arbitrator will now try to reconcile the two based on the law. Based on the law. And if anybody is guilty of doing wrong, that person has to make amends. That's really all it is. And that is what is happening in this text. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the people. He is saying, look, this is my quarrel. This is my accusation. This is what I'm saying. These people have done wrong to me. We are meant to be in a covenant relationship. There's a certain way they are supposed to relate to me, and they are not. And the three things that he particularly brings out that are his quarrel against the people of Israel, number one is the lack of truth or faithfulness. Number two is the lack of um, love or mercy. And then thirdly, it is a lack of knowledge of God himself. And here it is at the end of verse 1. There is no faithfulness, that is truth or faithfulness. There is no steadfast love or a life of mercy. And then there is no knowledge of God in the land. It's this three. And he is saying, that's not the way my people are supposed to live. We are in a relationship where my characteristics, the kind of life that means everything to me because of who I am, they are supposed to be living out. 
and they are not doing so. What is the evidence? Well, he has given his Ten Commandments. And in those Ten Commandments, you can divide it into half. The first four or five, depending on your position, point to our relationship with God. And then the last five, obviously, point to our relationship with one another. But they have broken literally every one of them that has to do with our interpersonal relationships. Look at this. Verse 2. There is swearing and lying. That has to do with the sin of the lips, and that is the ninth commandment broken. There is murder. Thou shalt not commit murder. That's the sixth commandment broken. There is stealing. Thou shalt not steal. There you have the seventh, was it eighth commandment broken? Yeah, the eighth commandment. And then, thou shalt not commit adultery. There it is, and committing adultery. Again, we have it there, that's the seventh commandment. Clearly, all these commandments broken, each one of them, and the greatest one of them, of the commandments, as you know, is the sixth commandment, at least in the second tablet. And it is, you shall not commit murder. But look at what he says there at the bottom of verse 2. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. It's terrible, he is saying. And yet, they are supposed to be my people. If somebody comes into Israel and sees the way they live, he is supposed to know the kind of God they worship. The kind of God who is in relationship with. That's what's supposed to happen. But if he comes in and sees the way they are living, he is going to conclude, if he knew me, that I am not their God. I can't be because of the nature they, in which they live. The consequence of all this has been this temporal judgment upon the entire land. And so he says in verse 3, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, including the beasts, the birds, and even the fish of the sea. That's, that's how terrible the whole situation has become. And surely that's not the way it's meant to be. Because where there is the appropriate relationship with God, there should be a land of joy, a land of blessing, a land that's flourishing, and so forth. A land that I myself am consequently blessing. But look at this. Well, what is the root cause? What's causing all this? God puts a finger on it. And it is the third of those three. It's not primarily a lack of truthfulness. It's not primarily a lack of love. It is primarily a lack of the knowledge of God. And once you don't know God, then you will not know true love. 
then you will not know true faithfulness. Inevitably. And look at the way, therefore, he puts it there in verse 4 to verse 6. This is the root cause. Yet let no one contend. In other words, try and be on defense. And let none accuse. In other words, come back to me with a counter-accusation. For with you is my contention, O priest. The priests were meant to be vehicles of knowledge. I have explained this before. Let me try and explain it again. Although we say that in Israel there were three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king, and to a large extent it is true, the prophet was not really an office in Israel. Let me try and explain. With respect to a king, you knew where to find a king if you needed help. It was in a palace. That's where he functioned from. That's where all his paperwork was. That's where his capacitors, those that you'd be sending aside, that's where they were. That's where the, the elders of the land were. There is a place where a king functioned and it was an official office. There was a process by which a king was brought into office. A very clear process. There would be an ordination day when he would be set aside. The same thing with a priest. If you wanted to meet a priest, you knew where to go. You went to the temple and that's where he functioned. He, he, the, the utensils by which he functioned were also all over the temple. He functioned from there. There was a process by which a priest came into office. He, he had a line from which he had to come, and it was the line of uh, Levi, and so forth. Everything was there in place. Full stop. There was nothing like that for a, a, a prophet. There was nowhere where you could say, okay, now, if you're a prophet, this is where you function from. Where? There was absolutely nothing. Um, with respect to how does a prophet come into office? Zero. There was nothing. There was no process of bringing you into, into office. Uh, wh what were his utensils? What, what were you, was he a prophet using in order to function? <laughs> so a prophet basically just showed up one day and said, guys, you're in trouble. <laughs> it was up to you to believe him or not, and he would vanish. That's, that's basically what it was. So with respect to the duty of giving knowledge to people, it was given to the priests in their official capacity. It was their job to make sure that the people knew the covenant of God and consequently they knew the God of the covenant. And so, the disaster here was that the priests were not doing their job. They, they were talking, yes, full of talk, but it was not delivering the knowledge of God to the people of God. And so that's why he says here, for with you is my contention, O priest. And notice, it's a prophet who's talking. Prophet was here. He's saying, God has told me to tell you, priests, 
that you are failing in your duty. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and oversight refers to the false prophets, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. You can't miss the fact that God there is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to punish you, to punish you, the priests, because you have deliberately put a curtain over the knowledge that the people should have of me, of my law, so that they might live by my law. And by living by my law, they will consequently receive a blessing from me. You are not doing that. And because of that, I'm coming in to punish you. And obviously, he brings in the issue of mother and children and so on to just say, I'm coming to touch you where it matters the most. I'm bringing punishment upon you. So again, uh, brethren, I think before we, we proceed, and we'll be proceeding in a moment, I think it's crucial for us to already draw some lessons from that. And it is this, that the God who is there has given us his moral law. We refer to it as the Ten Commandments. There is no Christianity that throws that away. There's no such a Christianity. Because that law exhibits the nature of God. That's how he is. And the first tablet points us to the way we are to relate to him. Don't allow anybody to ever say that, no, it doesn't matter. We can live as we please in our relationship with God just because that's what we want. It's nothing like that. He has revealed his character and the way he wants to be known and worshipped through that. And in the same way, he, he has revealed how we are to relate to one another. You cannot claim to be a child of God when you are deliberately breaking even that part of God's law. You can't. Because in the end, all you are doing is that you are entering into a controversy with the living God by your rebellion. And in the end, you will be punished. So that's an obvious application that we are seeing there. But secondly, it is to make it abundantly clear, brethren, that the further we are from the knowledge of God, the more sinful we will inevitably be. Because it is as we know God that we then ask the question, therefore, how should I live? And then you begin to see that there are moral implications on the way in which you live. What that means is that we must deliberately, first of all, make sure that God's word 
is constantly being beamed out from among us to the world out there. Because if we maintain God's truth within four walls of the church and don't share it out there on the public forum, so to speak, well, there's going to be ignorance of God there. Therefore, there's going to be the absence of love and the absence of truth. And we shouldn't just be saying, hey, you know, you, you are full of all kinds of wrong behavior. The question is, but do they know this God? Have we shared the truth concerning this God to them? So it's our responsibility to ensure that the truth about God is being known out there. But let me go further. That even within the context of the church, we need to ensure that we are deliberate in all the teaching ministries of the church. First of all, that we have got people teaching and preaching regularly. And then that God's people are sitting there to learn. Because if they are not there, it doesn't matter how much you teach, the people are not there to learn. And therefore, ignorance grows. And as ignorance grows, obviously, sin grows. So it's our responsibility to make sure that the Christian church remains an educational institution. That we are training pastors so that as we are training them, they are filling the pulpits and teaching God's word properly. And then that we ourselves are taking time to be there to be learning. Well, let's quickly go on because these are obvious fruits that we are picking from Hosea speaking about God's controversy against his people. And he's saying, your lives are bad because the priests are not telling you the truth. But number three, he shows the way that this is spiraling into more sin and more punishment. More sin and more punishment. More sin and more punishment. The situation is only getting worse. Let's see this from verse 7 down to verse 14. By far the longest section. And the reason is because it's this spiraling downwards. He says, the more they increase in number, the more they sin against me. I will change, that's the punishment now, I will change their glory into shame. Verse 8. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. In other words, it's more and more sin. That's the way their lives are. They, they, they seem to be having degrees and master's degrees and PhD degrees in sinning. It's more and more and more. And he says, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So again, punishment. 
You can see it. They are sinning and I will punish them. Verse 10. They shall eat. This is part of the punishment. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the war that is prostitution but not multiply. They will not have children because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish wardom, wine, and new wine which take away the understanding, which again, notice, has to do with aspect of knowledge. So, it's the same thing. They, I'm punishing them, and what is happening? They are forsaking God and going even more into reckless living. That's what is capturing by both the wardom and finally this drunkenness, drinking and drinking their heads off. Look at the fruit of this drunkenness in, uh, in verse 12, and you will see how God is capturing this. He says, my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. It is basically showing the senselessness that they've arrived at. That here they are, they, they, they go into the forest and they cut a piece of wood. They come home and they curve it into something, a piece of wood. And they put it in the corner. And then they start bowing down to it to try and get answers concerning their difficulties in life. Now, anybody who just has just a little bit of sense will say, ah, you just cut that wood from the forest. D does it make sense to you that you should be bowing to it now as your God? Maybe even one part of that wood you, you, you turned into a walking stick. It's the same wood. You make it into a walking stick. So one part you are using to walk, the other part you are asking for guidance in life. Senselessness. But friends, that's exactly what sin does to us. It makes us senseless. People stop thinking. Basically, and they get very angry with you when you try to raise the reasonableness, the logic that is taking place here. They, 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 they start calling you all kinds of names when really their lives are no longer logical. They're not. I remember many years ago, you know, a guy who drank a lot, actually, one day, wanting to borrow money from me. And I said, look, I, I, I can't lend you money. First of all, I don't lend out money I give. But assuming I had the money, think for a moment. You spend the whole month drinking away your money. I've kept mine. You, you've been drinking it. Now you finished it. You come to me. Well, yeah. He was already upset with me, already upset. You know, you righteous, self-righteous, you can keep your money, what, what, and stormed away. 
Now, thankfully, we've since reconciled. But, <laughs> but my point is, it's illogical. You, you know, go from your place of work straight to a beer or a tavern or a bar to go and blow away your money. You blow it away. Then you now come, oh, school fees, my children, you know, otherwise they'll be chased away from school. It's your life that is senseless. And therefore, that's what you need to correct. Sin is senseless. It says there about this spirit that has overtaken them in um, verse 13. Well, I skipped halfway through verse 12. For a spirit of wardom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the war. The, 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 what is really talking about there? It's, it's, it's so senseless. It is as though they have been possessed by a demon. Basically, that's what he's saying. It's so senseless. It's as though they've been possessed by a demon. You can think about this pressure to do with homosexuality exactly the same way. Because you sit there and, and you say, okay, let, let's sit down. You, you're saying you, you feel as if you're a woman. This is a man talking. He feels as if he's a woman. So, okay, tell me, how does a woman feel? <laughs> All they do is they get upset with you. I, I need to go for surgery to go and become what I, I really think I'm supposed to. Come on. Have you been possessed by a demon? Because you just need to get a little child who hasn't even gone to school to come and take off your clothes. That child would tell you whether you are a man or a woman. Don't even need to go to school. What's the problem? Has a demon overtaken you? I can multiply examples. In all these other areas, it's the senselessness that comes to human beings because they have forsaken God. They have forsaken God. Verse 13 downwards is still about this idolatry. The sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shed is good. All that is happening in the world of idolatry. And as he comes on to talk about punishment, remember it's more sins, more punishment, more sins, more punishment, more sins, more punishment. Here, in verse 14, he now says, I'm not going to punish the women. I'm not going to punish the, the, the daughters. I'm not going to punish the young brides. I'm going to punish you men. Why? Because you are failing to give leadership, and instead, you are the very first ones going in the direction of sin. Look at the way he puts it there. In verse 14. All along he's been saying, I'll punish, I'll punish, I'll punish. Now he says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the war. No, your brides when they commit adultery. Why? 
for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. There it is, punishment finally. It's the lack of leadership, male leadership, that men are using their God-given authority to then go out and prostitute themselves. That's what they do. And it's true, isn't it, in society generally. When a, when a, a woman is uh, adulterous, everybody tears their clothes, throw dust on their heads. It's uh, terrible. A man is a spare wheel. If he's being faithful, at his under petticoat government, and so on. So men are excused. Women are not excused. God is saying, uh-uh. Men should lead by example. It should not just be the woman who should be hardworking. The man must be even more hardworking. Otherwise, God brings punishment still upon them. So it's still all to do with knowing God. And the lack of knowing him having an impact on our lives is resulting in a life that is abnormal, a life that is immoral, a life that is under the judgment of God. More sinning, more punishing. More sinning, more punishing. Well, we have two more sections to wrap up this chapter. The next is an appeal from God. And the appeal, in a sense, was too late. But it still had to be made. And it is this, that bad company ruins good morals. It's inevitable. When you've got one child in the home who is misbehaving, soon other children in the home who used to behave also start misbehaving. And you're not disciplining that one child. If in a church you allow a section of the church to start living recklessly, wickedly, and in evil, and you don't address it, very soon, that lifestyle begins to grow in the church. And it becomes a common affair. Many more people begin to live like that. Well, with respect to Israel, there was, uh, Israel was divided into two. There was Israel, which would be, have been called the Northern Kingdom, and then Judah, that would have been referred to as the southern kingdom. And between the two of them, it was Israel, the ten tribes, that went astray the most. And then the Judah followed in due season. But notice the way in which it is put here in verse 15 and 16. Basically, as I said, as an appeal. 
Though you play the war, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Basically, the point is that Israel, for you, is too late. It's too late. But do not allow your behavior to overflow to Judah. Well, as I already said to you, later on you will see from the other minor prophets, it was too late. Judah soon followed the way of Israel. But as I already said, there's something to be learned concerning church discipline there. And it is the fact that if you don't arrest evil and sin, it will spread. It will. And that's the reason why in the New Testament, again and again, the Bible speaks in those same terms. That it is important to address sin, as it, especially when it becomes stubborn. And again, it's, it's something we need to learn. Often, people think that church discipline is on those who sin. And the answer is no. You don't discipline those who sin. You discipline those who stubbornly continue in sin. Because if you discipline all who sin, well, all of us sin, including Pastor Mbewe. So, everybody will be disciplined. But it is stubbornly continuing in sin that then merits judgment. And it's clear here, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. And it's because of that stubbornness that God is going to finally punish. The point nonetheless is there is a decision, an appeal to stop this from spreading. Don't you know that a little yeast leaveneth the whole dough? That's what Paul says in First Corinthians. And that's what is being talked about here, that it needs to be prevented. And one of the reasons why Israel was soon sent into captivity was to teach Judah a lesson so that Judah can see the price of idolatry and consequently not go there. Very quickly, the last part. And the last part is basically saying the case for Israel is hopeless. Israel is beyond cure. Israel must now simply come under punishment. This is God's controversy to the people. Verse 17 down to the end. Just three final verses. Ephraim is joined to idols. The phrase there meaning glued to idols. And that's the stubbornness. You say what you want. Mm. 
The person just wants to continue in their own way. And God finally says through Ephraim, I mean through Hosea, leave him alone. Just, just, keep, just leave him. Let him go. To pay the price for his sin. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to warring. Their rulers dearly love shame. It's, it's pointless. You'd think that when their drink is gone, they'll come back. Ah, ah. Off they go into prostitution. Their rulers are not helping the matter. Instead of being ashamed, they love their shame. Publicly so. And remember that phrase about as though a demon has come over them. That's the way he ends. He says, a wind. The phrase there could be spirit. The same thing. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifice. That is going to be in the end when they are punished. But there it is. It's a hopeless case. Finally, they must just be punished. What are we learning there? Well, in a sense, I avoided leaving everything until the end. I deliberately was splicing them as we we're going on. But let me just quickly wrap that up for tonight. First of all, it is this. That as Christians, we must always recognize that God wants our hearts. He wants us to have a, an affectionate relationship with him, which is monogamous. In other words, with him alone. There should be no competition whatsoever in our hearts and in our lives. It's a love affair that God wants to have with us. He wants us to love him with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths, and from there to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He wants us to do that. And he's not going to accept a middle position. No. He is our husband. We are his bride. We must remain in covenant faithfulness to him. We must remain in that way. And that's the spirit behind the entire chapter, behind the entire book. But number two, it is that our number one priority is getting to know him. Reading his word regularly that we might be asking ourselves constantly, what kind of God is there as I'm reading the Bible? What, what is this teaching me about God? What is it? That we are learning about him and then also learning about his ways, his laws, his salvation, and so on. It must be our way of life because it is only through that that we are going to live the kind of life that God wants us to have. Our major disaster, brethren, is that we go to church and once we've come from church, 
we put our Bibles aside until next Sunday. We, 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 we don't deliberately take time to, to know this God, to know him more and more and more. And in the end, our own fallen natures take over. And we start justifying the way we live and what we are doing because we are not going back to this book to learn from God. So the lack of knowledge is going to produce a lack of genuine love for God and for his people and it will produce lack of truthfulness and faithfulness. So let us get to know him that way. And then lastly, we must share the truth of God with our world. Otherwise, our world will keep going from bad to worse. It's not enough that I'm an accountant and I'm trying to stop people from stealing money or that I'm a policeman and consequently I'm arresting people and throwing them into the cells. Or that I'm a teacher and I'm just saying, you know, we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be doing that, we shouldn't be doing the other. That's not the way we should be living. In all these areas, we must be able to say, because God says, because this is the God who is there. We need to be consistently informing the world because it is the knowledge of God that will finally give to us a better world. Now, granted, prophecy makes it clear that it's going to get worse, but hopefully our little corner of the world will not be as bad as the rest of the world because we have been faithful in speaking this truth so that people might know the God who is there and consequently, in our case, seek after salvation in Christ. Because we won't just tell them the kind of God who is there, we'll also tell them his laws and his ways, and then we'll tell them about his salvation as well in Christ. We'll say to them, that's why I'm able to live as I live, because Christ has saved me. And I appeal to you to also seek him, that he might save you as well. Those are a few lessons then from Hosea and chapter 4. Thank you very much. Back to our song leader.